Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of the Intentional Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I am delighted to have with me today Phyllis Bagel, who wears many hats, including licensed clinical professional counselor, certified professional school counselor, author, and journalist. Phyllis is the author of two books that I highly recommend, especially if you, like me, are parenting a middle schooler, which is the topic of our conversation today. Her books are Middle School Matters, the 10 key skills kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond and how parents can help. That was published in 2019. And Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. That was published in 2023. I connected recently with Phyllis on Twitter, and ever since, I've really just enjoyed diving into her content and really enjoyed both of her books. Surviving and hopefully thriving in middle school is a big topic of conversation at my house these days, so I was really psyched to get a true expert on the podcast to discuss everything from puberty to popularity to proper use of technology. Be sure to check out the show notes on this one. We cover a ton of ground in this conversation, but Phyllis also recommends quite a few books and podcasts on specific topics. And I've listed all of those along with the links to her books in the show notes. Finally, if you want a further breakdown on this episode and to hear more about the best of what I'm learning from experts like Phyllis, check out my newsletter, gregcampion.substack.com. It's one email every other week. I think you might enjoy it. would love to have you be part of that community. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Phyllis Fagel. All right, Phyllis Fagel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm so psyched to have you here. I've been uh, steeped in your work recently and finding it extremely helpful. So uh, very excited to get to uh, personally ask you some questions today. And I think our audience is going to really love a lot of the knowledge that you kind of bring to bear here. So the topic of our discussion is middle school and uh, middle school, we know, is a time of massive change. both for kids and for parents. Um, You and I were discussing before we started recording. I have a sixth grader who is my oldest and we're just embarking on this journey. So we're uh, trying to figure it all out and we're noticing it's it's a big change. Uh, And so that's why I'm I have tons of questions, but uh, I think you are uh, obviously an expert in this area. So you've written two books on the subject now, which I've been really enjoying. One is called Middle School Matters. 10 Key Skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond, and uh, and How Parents Can Help, sorry. And uh, and more recently, you've just published your second book uh, on, the, on the topic, Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. Uh, yes, this is what we need to do. So let me just start high level and ask you, I'm curious kind of what your motivation was uh, to write both of these books and kind of how they've been received so far. I wrote the first book when I was a new middle school parent myself, and I also was a new middle school counselor. I wasn't new to school counseling, and I had been working with kids in private practice, but I had never been in a middle school. Because I had been in elementary and high school settings, I thought I was going to be golden, that I would know what I was doing. And as it turned out, much as you've discovered as a parent, it was this whole new world And when I went looking for resources that would help me navigate this for myself as a parent, also as a school counselor, and also to be able to support teachers in my school, I discovered there was very, very little out there. Mm -hmm. Often researchers will lump middle schoolers in either with younger kids or with high schoolers, and their needs are so distinct and different. And because I had started my career as a journalist, I decided to write the resource that I was seeking myself. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I don't think I'd realized that you were a journalist in your prior life. Um, that's cool. Okay, so you're putting those those writing skills uh, to work. Yeah, and then the second one wasn't supposed to exist at all. Middle school superpowers was really a response to the fact that in the interim between 2019, when Middle School Matters came out, and now, as we all have seen, the world has changed quite a bit. Kids growing up today are dealing with totally different stressors in addition to the usual middle school stuff. And I did more of a high level deep dive into the phase, how we can help support healthy, emotionally healthy, socially healthy, academically, 
balanced kids who can navigate everything happening both in the world and in their bodies and in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Obviously the world's changed pretty dramatically with the pandemic and, and uh, you know, it's really interesting to sort of follow the path of these kids, depending on like what ages they were over those couple of years and kind of the, the kind of impacts that are kind of reverberating through, you know, you see things like math test scores being lower and things like that. But um, obviously like the social element is a big deal as well. You know, I think about some of these kids being, you know, um, cooped up at home for a couple of years and, you know, potentially missed some of those like key milestones or just interactions that are like age appropriate. So that, I think the second book is obviously much needed. Um, okay. So one, one of my hopes in this conversation is, and maybe this is ambitious or maybe, maybe putting too much pressure on, you know, I don't know, but what I'm hoping to do is kind of go 80, 20 rule and kind of get, see if we can uncover like the 20% uh, in terms of strategies and tactics that we can use with middle schoolers as parents, as educators um, to, uh, to drive 80% of the results. So I want to hit things like technology is a big issue that we're all dealing with as parents, um, relationships, uh, that the kids have, and, you know, obviously physical changes, your bodies, their bodies are actually, you know, changing and that, you know, is a whole, uh, another can of worms. So I want to talk about all that stuff, but let's talk about the academic part first, if that's okay with you. Um, you know, in our experience anyways, it's been, I mentioned my son is in sixth grade, so he has moved up in his school, sixth, seventh, and eighth is what's considered middle school. Uh, and that leap from fifth to sixth was probably bigger than we were expecting in terms of things like uh, he had actually never gotten grades before, which was a change that they had made in his school, I think a couple of years ago. So, so this year was the first year he's actually getting letter grades. Um, but then just day to day in terms of like switching classes, uh, you know, not just having one or two teachers, but having like seven or eight teachers. And maybe you don't have like really intimate personal relationships with each of those teachers and you're switching classes and you have to know which notebook to bring to which class. And then you have to know which ones to bring home at the end of the day. And then you have to monitor all your uh, different homework for all your classes on Google Classroom and all this stuff. Like, all of a sudden you go on from being like li little kid to like, you actually have legit responsibilities now. So maybe let's start there. I mean, I'm curious like what you've seen work and not work in terms of making that academic transition. So just first to go back to the research on that topic, you're absolutely right. And there's even research showing that kids who are in the K-8 do better socially, emotionally, academically than kids who have to transition at a time when they're experiencing so much change as it is. And mm -hmm. it's protective to have them stay with adults who know them, people who know their name, to get those extra years to bake and work on executive functioning skills in a setting in which they're top dog. You know, they're the big kids in the school. Uh, similarly, there was research that somebody that is now a high school principal that I know did while they were getting their PhD, they created a program called Project Success where they had kids who were at risk when they entered sixth grade, rather than having seven or eight teachers stay and travel in a cohort and only have a couple of main teachers. And those kids mm -hmm. also did better. They even had higher graduation rates down the road. And so with that awareness, how do we support kids who are going to middle school in that traditional huge shift you're talking about suddenly maybe instead of walking to school they're getting on a bus they have to know their bus number they may not know their classmates their teachers don't necessarily know their names and this is all happening at a time when they have very few executive functioning skills they do not yet have that ability to predict how their work effort today will impact the product they produce tomorrow they're incredibly insecure they're looking for proof that they are good enough and also they're exquisitely sensitive and acutely aware of how they stack up to others right when we decide to grade them and mm -hmm. <laughs> assess them and mm -hmm. maybe put them into stratified groups in certain schools. And so we want to make sure that we're not transmitting the message that just because you're not there yet or you're still struggling to master mm -hmm. these activities, that there's anything wrong with you. We want them to think that the stakes are low, that they can experiment and I always say it's the last best chance because middle school is 
the last time you really can try every extracurricular under the sun before kids really specialize in high school, that's a whole other topic. But we want to make sure that we're focusing more on that process and on what they're learning and how they seek help when they need it and how they regroup when things don't go well. And how do you talk to somebody you don't know when you really want to have friends because their social life is everything too. Mm, mm. Yeah, that last best chance that uh, almost like brings a tear to my eye a little bit. But I, I, I think in one of the books you talked about that in terms of like once they get to high school, like they're spending so much more time with their friends as well. And so like this period of time is like uh, almost like last best chance to like really influence them in, in different ways. Um, so l- let me ask you to just uh, on, on a little more on the academic side. So like um, on the grade side, so we mentioned, you know, may- maybe your kid's been getting grades for several years. Maybe this is the first time, but, uh, as parents, obviously, you know, and maybe it's part of like parent insecurity, but like you want your kid to be coming home with good grades, right? You're like, you want to see A's and B's and anything below that is like going to be a shock to the system. And what are we doing wrong? And all this kind of stuff. And then obviously the, the pressure, in terms of, you know, I have to get good grades because I need to get into college, it needs to get into a good college. And that, I mean, to me, that's kind of like starting already in sixth grade. Um, how do you think about grades and the importance of grades to be, you know, as a whole at this so, age, I guess? So first, just some general communication advice when you're mm-hmm. thinking about this topic with your kid. I hear you sharing that there's a lot of anxiety for parents to when it comes to grades. What does this mean for their future? What if they don't get into the advanced class in ninth grade? And what if that ultimately means they won't get into XYZ college? So we're bringing all of that anxiety to the table. And first, at a high level, no middle schooler does better when they think the stakes are high or when they think that the repercussions of not doing well are severe. In fact, Mm -hmm. there's research showing that older adolescents even do have an easier time than younger adolescents understanding that the stakes are high. So we want to make sure we're lowering the pressure, which might mean that as an adult, we have to talk ourselves down. We have to process this with someone else so that when they get in the car after school and they're dejected because they got that C on a test and it will happen at some point and they're beating themselves up because, again, they are very much aware of how well they're doing and they do not want to disappoint their parents. In that moment, the best thing you can do is say to your kid, wow, that stinks. I'm sorry that happened. That is not the time to ask them if they studied or what they could have done differently or to tell them that this might influence what happens to them seven years from now. That's just a time to be empathetic. Later. When the dust has settled a little bit, you can say something to them like, I noticed you were really disappointed about that grade. Do you want to talk about what you could do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Are you open to my help? With middle schoolers, you always want to ask for an invitation to help so -hmm. that they don't feel like you're uh, stripping their sense of competency away from them. It's really important for them to feel like they can manage their problems. So you're coaching rather than telling them what to do. And then recognize that Kids in this age group, parents often will ask me if their kid is lazy, because what looks like laziness to them is actually developmentally appropriate. They aren't great at dividing up their time or anticipating how long something will take. They don't yet know how to advocate for themselves or to figure out what options they have for studying differently. So if you think about it in that context, what we can do to help them is really help them help themselves, figure out what sets them up for success. Do they do better studying in a group? Do they need to have a quiet place in the house where they can study? Do they want to come up with a list of things that they want to make sure they get done before they pick up their phone? And the list goes on. Okay. We're going to, we're going to get to phones because that's a big question I have. Um, Now, let me ask you this. So if you think about uh, everything you're saying, hundred percent hits, hits home with me. Uh, um, so let's, let's say we have this scenario, which plays out in my house regularly. 
Um, we know that there's a test coming up. Uh, let's say it's like a Saturday or a Sunday. We know there's a test coming up on Thursday. We have nothing going on on Sunday. And we know that there we have something every night of the week, like there's basketball practice or there's this or there's that. Like we're going to be busy and my sixth grader is going to be busy all week. And we're like, okay, like here's the deal. Like we know your test is on Thursday. You, you don't, you're probably not going to have much time at all to study during the week. Today you have a whole day. And um, like we try to communicate that. But then what happens is basically no studying gets done and you get to then but all of a sudden it's like Wednesday night and it's like panic. I need to stay up till 10 o'clock study, you know, this and that. So what do you think is the best strategy there? I mean, do you think like it's do you think like it, it like from a parent perspective, it makes sense to dial it back and be like, hey, this is your thing. Like, you know, what you need to do and like basically be OK with him failing or how does that, how, how do you think about that? So first, I think it's great that you had that conversation with him. You have a really busy week. You've got a lot of unstructured time on Sunday. If I were in your shoes, I might consider doing some of this studying today because it makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. And he heard you and he didn't do it. And as a result on Wednesday, when he was in a crunch, he had to stay up late. He felt really stressed which probably didn't feel very good. And he probably didn't do quite as good of a job as he would have liked because he had to, because he had pushed it off to the last minute. And that's where the last best chance stuff comes in because he did hear you. It did get lodged in his memory somewhere. He will probably pull that out at a later date. And we are more likely to remember things that don't go well than things that do go well. And so he learned at a time when the stakes are low that the person he hurt the most by procrastinating was him. Mm. And to use an analogy, if you have a younger child and you're battling them over whether or not they're going to wear a jacket on a cold day and you say, fine, don't wear a jacket, you know, they're not going to freeze to death. It's not below zero. And so you allow them to go and learn for themselves that when you don't wear a jacket and it's cold out, it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant. And the hope is that the next time it won't be a battle because they themselves will decide I'm happier when I choose to bring a jacket. And so this is just the middle school equivalent of that. It would be great if we could prevent them having to learn the hard way that if you don't plan out your time in advance, you're in a crunch at the end. But the truth is they have to learn that for themselves. And middle school is actually a perfect time to learn that kind of lesson. Yeah, I like that. Um, that's actually pretty encouraging for me to hear um, just like a couple of things that you said in terms of like, you said that to him. He heard you. Like that's maybe packed away somewhere. It's not completely in one ear and out the other. And I like the idea of this being like a low stakes time to uh, learn some of these consequences of what happens when you don't um, prepare like you should. Now, one of the things that you wrote about, um, uh, I think it was in uh, Middle School Matters, is that uh, this idea of like what happens when you have like a teacher-student mismatch, um, which is always very interesting to me. Like I Maybe I'm not getting, maybe I don't give my kids enough credit, but I'm always kind of like, really? Is that like I hear stuff like, oh, you know, this is actually a pretty good grade because this teacher doesn't like boys. She doesn't give boys good grades. I'm like, really? The teacher doesn't <laughs> give boys good grades. Okay. Uh, so how do you deal with that? Because because like we said up front, like um, this is a new chapter where they're dealing with a lot of different teachers. And, and so they may not have that really personal relationship with the teacher. They may only you know, see them for whatever it is, 30 or 40 minutes a day. And uh, they're one of 25 kids or whatever. And they're just like, this, this teacher doesn't like me, you know, whatever. Like how, how do you, how would you um, kind of uh, approach that as a parent? So something that I've often said to my own kids and all three are now out of middle school finally, but I did enjoy that phase a lot is write to your editor. And that harkens back to my first career as a journalist as well, but their job is not to like and be liked by their teacher. Their job is to learn. And one of the set of skills that our kids are working on this 
age group, especially now post-pandemic, are social skills, learning to interpret feedback accurately, learning to respectfully ask for an extension or an accommodation, learning how to get extra support when you need it, learning how to smooth over a conflict, learning how to circle back to a teacher and make sure that everything is fine after she had to talk to you in a sharp tone, whatever it might be. We're not going to ever be in an environment in school or in work where we can guarantee that we are going to have a really chummy relationship with everybody that is supervising us or grading us. And so reframing that whole topic, you can still learn from a teacher you don't like. And then going back to the developmental phase, recognize that most of the time, probably 95%, if not more of the time when kids say that a teacher doesn't like them, the teacher likes them just fine. And they're having trouble separating out either maybe an instance where the teacher scolded the class, or maybe they asked for a point on a quiz and the teacher was annoyed and they're carrying that around. The teacher has long ago let it go, but they're still holding mm -hmm. on to that. Mm -hmm. And so focusing with your child on what they can do to repair the relationship or to be assured that the relationship is in decent shape. And that might mean finding an excuse to go talk to them about something else. In extreme cases, parents can reach out to the teacher and say, hey, listen, I think my kid is feeling sensitive. Would you mind inviting them in for lunch or having a conversation with them and reassuring them that you're in good shape right now with them just to help them feel more comfortable in your class? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love that parallel to like, you know, later in life uh, in the workplace, yeah, you're probably not going to be like best friends with everybody, but you can find a way to like work with everybody. Um, and along those lines, in terms of self-advocating, uh, I'm curious if you have any advice there. I would say one thing we've, we've tried to really encourage that with my sixth grader and, um, you know, especially classes where he's having more trouble or he just finds them more challenging or whatever um, he's got. And I would guess there's, this is probably similar to other schools, but he, he gets to school maybe like, I don't know, half hour before school actually starts. And a lot of these teachers are available. And so he's, he basically is, I, I was, I told him like, look, like, you know, one of the ways that you're going to be able to succeed here, like, let's say you're, it's a subject that you're really struggling with and you're just like, I am, Spanish is just impossible for me, you know, like, okay, but what, what would happen if you started showing up to your, you know, meet with your teacher for 30 minutes and asked for additional help? It turns out the teachers are, you know, they all have their specific preferences in terms of they want to be, you know, maybe get an email in advance or whatever. And that's a whole nother thing, like seeing how these kids write emails and helping them, you know, get that right. Uh, just in terms of like basic um, greetings and such. But um, we found that to be a really effective way. And my son, to his credit, he is, that's something that comes naturally to him. And in his teachers, we got that feedback in one of his parent teacher conferences is that they were like, Hey, this, this is awesome that he's doing this. Because like we're trying to get ninth graders actually to do this. So, where where how do you kind of fall out on that whole idea of like self advocacy? So self advocating is a social risk, and mm -hmm. adults tend to minimize social risks with this age group. We tend to underestimate how hard something is for a kid to do, and that extends to their social lives too. So we might, in a very well meaning way, say, "Why don't you just invite them over?" And our kid is thinking, I can't even sit at their table in the cafeteria and you want me to invite them over. And so recognizing that the, these risks are hard and depending on your kid, if they're more introverted or if they are more insecure, it might be even harder for them mm -hmm. and working mm -hmm. with them to come up with more comfortable risks. And with a sixth grader in particular, that might mean that you're sending that email for them and they're watching you send it so that you're writing the teacher to say, hey, my kid is going to be at school at X time. He's actually sitting right next to me. Uh, when you see him, if you see him, can you remind him to come in or can you invite him in? Uh, if 
he doesn't hear back from you. I'm hoping he does it on his own, but you might need to follow up because we're not 100% sure that he's going to feel comfortable walking in on his own. So you can give them that assist and you're working toward a point where they're writing that email and maybe at first you're watching them write that email so that mm -hmm. you're making sure that they're getting their point across in a respectful and effective way. And then eventually they're hopefully making that initial contact on their own. But you're kids' teachers are right. Often that doesn't happen until eighth grade or even later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even within my own family, I could tell that it's it's very much probably a dependent on the kid and the kid's personality. I, I think like some kids doing that maybe comes more naturally. Other kids, maybe that's like their worst nightmare to um, to, to have to do something like that. So, okay, cool. Um, I want to move on and talk about physical changes, but before we do, is there anything else you want to say that like is super important from when it comes to academics or any mistakes you think parents are making or anything like that, that just, that comes to mind? I would say you want to keep the conflict down at home. If you're fighting over homework, I had one student who was constantly begging her father to give her the answer and she would melt down if he didn't give her the answer. And that's not going to be mm. effective for either one of them, but she also needs to be calm enough in order to learn. And eventually the father said, listen, if I see you make a really good faith effort and you allow me to explain to you how you might work through this problem and you still don't have the answer, then I will help you at the end. Tamping down that anxiety. Sometimes the best way to tamp down anxiety is just to take a break. If a kid is up here, you know, and their emotions are at a 10, have them help you, you know, need pizza dough or go for a walk with the dog. Do something else rather than just trying to push through those difficult feelings, which often won't work anyway and will only make everybody more aggravated. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, on to the physical changes. Talking about, you know, people being on edge and getting aggravated. We've got hormones starting to uh, come into play at this age. And so, you know, obviously... Uh, you know, kids go through puberty and it's incredibly awkward for everybody involved, or it can be incredibly awkward for everybody involved. Um, you've got different kids going through at, you know, different times and that adds to the kind of awkwardness of the whole thing. Um, so let's start just high level on physical changes that are happening. What, what have you seen work best from a, a parenting standpoint in terms of navigating all that? So just recognize first that it's emotional changes, intellectual changes, physical changes, all of that goes along with those hormonal changes. Mm. And so you see a lot of shifting in friend groups too. Some kids might be much more sophisticated and they want to use makeup or they're really interested in their romantic life and your kid might still be playing with Legos. And mm -hmm. that can be a really hard, sad time for kids. They can feel left behind. On the other hand, it's no fun to go through puberty first either. And this all comes down to the fact that A, their social lives are everything. And B, this is a time when kids want to conform to the norm. They want to be like everyone else. So if you have a kid who stands out as maturing on the later side, or if they're on the earlier side, they're probably going to have a harder time than kids who fall right in the middle. That being said, it is challenging for everyone. You want to treat your kid the age they are, not the way they look, because in terms of their brain development, whether or not they look like an adult woman or a child, they are still a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old and have the skills that go along with that and the emotions that go along with that. You want to make sure they have good information because it's really scary. And I have had students who've gone through puberty without having information in advance about what's coming, even mm -hmm. as young as third, fourth grade. If you've got younger kids, you want to make sure that you're teaching them about puberty. And as they hit middle school, they're probably not want not going to want to talk to you directly in terms of their own bodies. And so you may need to get a little creative, have materials on hand that they can look at on their own, direct them to videos. Amaze.org is a great resource. Mm -hmm. And if they are willing to have that conversation with you, great. Be open to having it whenever they want to have it, which will not be when you're feeling up to it. It will be at 10 o'clock at night, probably, when you're finally unwinding. Kids yeah. are on a different uh, 
I, I joke with my own kids that I feel like we're living in different time zones because when they want to have these conversations, it's always when I'm ready to pass out or finally I'm mm. getting sitting down to work on something else. So just be open to having that conversation when they're willing to have it. And it might also be at a time when there's no eye contact. So in the car, mm. uh, yes. when you're playing the basketball, yep. anywhere where it feels a little less personal. That's I like that. I like that idea. Yeah, the car or if you can somehow manage to get your kid to go for a walk with with you or something like that but yeah that makes it like a little less awkward it's funny i was just having this conversation with a group of dads last night and where they were talking about what age do you have like sex talk with your kids and this and that and a bunch of the dads were like my dad never did it with me i never got it and and they were giving me some flack because like i this about a year ago like i had a conversation with my son be, because there was like some catalyst. There was some things that are happening and we had heard him and his friends talking about a bunch of stuff. And I was like, okay, like this kid's operating with a bunch of bad information. These kids are operating with a bunch of bad information. Let me like have this conversation with my son and like get some basics down. But then of course I got a whole bunch of flack from uh, our neighborhood friends who are like, Oh, Greg, all the kids know everything now because <laughs> you told your son. Um, so the big joke is like, they you know, send them to my house for me to have a talk with them. But one of, one of them was actually like, Oh, you should, why don't you just record a podcast having the talk and then we'll all just play it for our kids. I'm like, no, I'm not taking that responsibility for everybody's <laughs> kids. But, um, but anyways, like, um, you mentioned some materials, um, Amaze.org. I haven't checked that out yet, but I know you mentioned that in the book uh, or books as well. Um, so I can point people to that and link to that in the show notes. Are there any books like? Um, yeah, there's come... a new book. Yeah. Uh, I actually interviewed the authors for an article in the post. It's cool. called "This Is So uh, This Is So Awkward: Modern Puberty Explained," and okay. it's really a roundup of everything related to puberty, even in terms of how it relates to athletics and sports oh, specialization, cool. which is a bigger issue these days. Uh, Deborah Rothman, her books are a little bit older, but she talks about how you can talk about sex in the service of reproduction, even with very young kids. Mm -hmm. And I mean, my philosophy, especially being in the school setting and seeing what kids are texting to each other and mm -hmm. what I'm overhearing much as you did if we want them to get accurate information as opposed to inaccurate information from a fellow seventh grader, it's incumbent on us to provide it to them. And, and actually, there's, a, there's another author, Peggy Ornstein. She wrote Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex. And her whole, her books really talk about, she interviewed a lot of teens in Boys and Sex. And a lot of them talk about how they really wish that their fathers in particular, had talked to them not only about sex, but about their romantic lives and their regrets, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that they had been better equipped to deal with things like heartbreak or to understand a lot of the issues that come up within the context of relationships. And, and with younger kids, you can do that in the context of friendships as well. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I'm going to check those out and I'll link to those um, in the show notes if anybody wants to go check those out. And in terms of like referencing your own experiences as, as a parent to, to your kids, like to me, that's something that uh, I've tried to do and tried to get better about recently. I think there's this, I think there's a risk uh, as a parent that you always come off, at least at this age, is like, Oh man, my parents are like, they never went through any of this stuff. They're, they're perfect. Like they never, and they see you as, you know, your 40, however your, your old self and you're married and whatever they, they don't know about there was, you know, botched relationships and heartbreaks and, you know, unrequited love and all this <laughs> stuff along the way. Yeah. And so I think I become more conscious of talking to my kids about my failures um, because I want to normalize it a little bit more. And, and actually there's good research showing that when you share family members, specifically family members, what, uh, the person who wrote about this called oscillating journeys, meaning the ups and downs, like the grandparent mm -hmm. who started a 
business, but then the factory burned down. And so they shifted gears and did this other business actually are far more resilient and far more mm. likely to persist through frustration. And I think that mm -hmm. probably extends to every aspect of their lives from romantic to friendships to academic. Which superpower would that be from your second book? Is that bounce? I think it's super bounce and super optimism. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, cool. Well, we started to allude to relationships a little bit. And so let's, let's dive in there. I mean, to me, thinking back on my own middle school years, I'm like, you know, the things that are like most painful to, to recall are like those social interactions that went really wrong. You know, I think back, I'm like, okay, uh, what was like most painful? I was like, uh, you know, I think there were, there was some times where like, there was some kids who like probably were what would be considered bullying me. And that, like, you think back on that, you're like, oh my God, like, I still feel like, like, not happy about that, you know, like, like, like some real animosity toward these people. And I'm like 45 years old. Um, but at the same time, like I was no saint, I think back and I'm like, I, I, you know, I'm sure I like said some really nasty things to people. And I just, just seeing the way that kids in this age group operate and things that come out of their mouths and you're like, Oh my God, like they can be brutal to one another. Um, and I guess part of that is just development. Like they haven't figured out empathy, which is something you talk about um, quite a bit in your books. But like, let's start out high level with um, relationships overall. Like, what have you seen work in terms of helping kids to just navigate friendships and, and stuff like popularity? Well, just to go back to your example, mm. I firmly believe that our middle school experiences are not inherently worse than hard experiences we had later. It's just that they're happening at a time when we're going through puberty. We have very little life experience or, or perspective. Mm -hmm. We're experiencing emotions on a scale of 10, you know, and we're often experiencing these setbacks for the very first time. So in, in combination, it makes them feel just so brutal. And it's part of what sets middle schoolers apart. It's why it's so much harder. Everything just feels so heightened. And then you add in what's happened in the last five years or so, and you get what I've been calling extreme tweens. It's the same tweens, only more so. Everything is even more amplified. So when it comes to friendships, I think one of the most powerful ways we can support our kids is, first of all, not to dismiss their desire for popularity. That's real. And social capital is real power especially for boys, it actually is protective. Otherwise you're like an animal at the edge of the herd. And so we have to appreciate that this matters to them because it is protective in a way that it might not be quite as protective later on. So that's the first thing. You can't talk a kid out of wanting to be popular. The mm -hmm. second is that we can't convince them to drop a friend who's unkind to them. And we can't force them to shift friend groups. What we can do is really help them think more critically about what they want. And the goal is to have them accept that they might need different friends right now. We're not telling them they have to forfeit the idea that they'll ever be friends with this group of friends they desperately want to fit in with, but we want them in this moment to find right fit friends for right now. And we can mm -hmm. talk about how they might be able to do that. We can help them get in touch with how they feel when they're with one friend versus another. I like using a lot of I'm wondering or I've noticed or I'm curious mm, phrasing as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, what are you thinking or why would you do that? Or, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, dump that friend. Mm -hmm. All they're going to do is try to convince us that we're wrong and we're not going to be at their side later on in life when they have to make these kinds of decisions in other contexts. And so we can teach them how to think through those kinds of dilemmas and help them make shifts. So if they're a sixth grader and they're on a soccer team and there's somebody who might be a potential friend and they're about to get dumped by their group of friends. And even if they don't see it, you do because parents always see it before the kids do. Mm -hmm. You can take them out for ice cream with the friend from that team. Or if they're having trouble making friends at all, maybe you have a potluck with other families in the neighborhood who have the same age kids just to give them a little bit of an assist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there was one stat I think you used in um, middle school matters that you said 1% uh, of friendships are intact 
by 12th grade still. 1% of middle school. I think it was something like that. But it ba- is basically exactly it. Seventh grade to 12th grade, only 1% of friendships are still intact. First year of middle school, only a third of friendships even make it from fall to spring. And yeah. if you ask kids to name their best friend in middle school, only half of them name them back. And 12% of sixth graders have nobody named them as a friend at all. I always share those statistics with kids to underscore that there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that this is when kids are figuring out who are those right fit friends for right now. And so there's a lot Mm -hmm. of churn, a lot of shifting, and kids are maturing at different rates. And they're trying to fit in. There's so many other things getting in the way of making Mm -hmm. pro-social choices or kind choices. And they're thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about Mm. other kids. To help kids feel better about this, especially if somebody is not being kind, I do always remind them that the research shows that kids who are mean can become nice, that power Mm -hmm. dynamics shift, that where they are socially on day one of middle school isn't necessarily where they'll be at the end, which is why Mm -hmm. it's so important for us as parents to help them avoid burning bridges. Because those same friendships that they want to, you know, they feel that kind of pain that you're talking about at 45, only more so because they're in the middle of it, then it might change it. They might feel different later. I was sharing a story recently. This was actually a younger, a younger uh, kid, but th- she came to me because with her friend who she had been having a really hard time with, they were constantly fighting to the point that the parents were forbidding them to be together. The parents Mm -hmm. were contacting the school to say, you know, we want them separated. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're bullying one another. You know, each one was saying the other one was doing the bullying. And I was echoing the parents in the sense of, you know, it sounds like you guys need uh, a break sometime apart. So when they came to see me for the umpteenth time to say they had a problem, I jokingly said, how can you have a problem? I thought you were taking a break from one another because things were so fraught. And they said, no, no, that's not it. That's not the problem. I said, what's the problem? And they said, the problem is we want to be friends again, and we do not know how to break it to our parents. (laughs) So we don't want to hold on to these things longer than our kids are holding on to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's something comforting in the fact that a lot of this stuff is temporary. And I like the idea. I... I, uh, (laughs) I was like trying to have a conversation with my sixth grader about some of this stuff. And I was like, Oh, you know, like, I think I quoted that stat to him. Like the only one per se He's like, dad, uh, that's great. But like, um, middle school is going pretty well for me. I like, I have a bunch of friends and I'm doing okay with grades. And he's basically like, stop trying to talk to me about all this stuff. But, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love a lot of the advice you give and you talk a lot in your, in your books about, um, empathy and, and encouraging empathy, I guess, maybe just quickly on that topic. Um, and I guess this would be along the lines of, uh, this, this whole concept of not burning bridges, I think is really important. And like, I think about my kids are in a relatively small school. They're going likely, you know, going to be seeing these kids for many years to come. And it's like, you don't want to have like a bad relationship really with anybody. So and, and to me, maybe, maybe this is a little bit of a leap, but I feel like empathy is a part of not burning bridges. So like curious if you would agree with that. And also like if there are any obvious ways to sort of like build or encourage empathy. You know, I think the best way to help kids develop empathy is to encourage them to interact with people who are not like them so that they can start to understand that everybody has a backstory and everybody is deserving of respect. And it's really win-win because when kids at an age when they so desperately want to conform are explicitly taught to respect everybody, regardless of how they might differ from them, they not only learn that you should treat others with respect, but at their most insecure, they learn that they're deserving of respect too. So they're less likely to tolerate mistreatment. It strengthens their resolve when they're faced with unkindness. And then when they come home and they tell you that someone was unkind, have a whole conversation about that. How did it make them feel? If they tell you a story about someone being rude or mean or unkind or excluding someone else, ask them how they think that person felt. In Middle School Superpowers, I share the research on cognitive empathy versus affective empathy. And affective empathy is when you feel someone else's pain. Cognitive empathy is when you understand why someone would feel hurt. 
even if you don't feel that pain. And actually, it's more important and more effective to teach our kids cognitive empathy, which is also easier to teach. You can't force someone to feel someone else's pain anyway. So having conversations when you see a story in the news, when you watch a character in a movie where you're really helping them understand why that character or why that individual might feel the way they do or speculating about how that person might feel just to build their cognitive empathy. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, okay. So I want to sort of shift gears a little bit and get into the conversation about technology. Um, obviously, all this stuff is all closely related because the relationships is very much tied in with the technology these days. Um, and this has been a major, major shift since since you and I were going through this um, uh, ourselves uh, all those years ago. So there's massive pressure right now for kids to have phones. There's massive pressure to be, you know... Uh, as a form as a form of um, communication, so like you hear a lot about things like, oh, well, I need to be on Snapchat because everybody's on Snapchat, and that's where everybody's making plans and this and that. Um, people are, you know, all these kids are on like Fortnite. They may or may not have, have access to social media. Like, let me let me start with the uh, the really obvious question and uh, upfront, and the, this is like when to get your kid a phone. <laughs> um, I know there's probably no right answer, but uh, we, so my son is 12. We have not given him a phone yet. He's got an iPad that he can use at home and he's got an Apple watch. That's, we basically use for like communication essentially. Um, but no phone yet, but obviously where he, what we hear is from him is that everybody has phones. And when we talk to the other parents, we're like, no, this, this kid does not. So it's, it's mixed. Like some kids have got phones at 11, some kids don't still have phones still. So everything, given all your knowledge, what have you seen kind of work best in terms of when they get access to the technology? I think there's a lot of power in delaying as long as you can. And it's a good skill as a parent to learn how to stand strong in the face of but everyone else is doing it logic. Mm -hmm. uh, that is always going to be the argument and it will never be true. There will always be people who are aligned with wherever you are. It may not be mm -hmm. the numbers they wish and they may feel excluded and that's real. And what we can do is really try to figure out what's the need that they're trying to fill. And mm -hmm. you provided them with an iPad so that they could text or they could stay connected with their friends because that was obviously what they felt they needed to feel connected. Social media, you want to really be aware of where your kid's maturity level is. And I Remind parents, you can always change the rules. So you might have a kid who's doing fine with uh, social media in sixth grade. And then in eighth grade, they start requesting you know, new pictures or something, and they're getting themselves in trouble. And you need to change the rules, depending on where they are developmentally. And mm -hmm. that's important that kids know from the get-go. I also think it's helpful to iron out expectations and rules and an agreement in advance, whatever it is whether it's the amount of time that they're on, whether it's that they have to check certain things off a list before they can go on, whatever that is, have those discussions in advance so that when you're in the moment, you're not having battle after battle. You can just very calmly say, as you know, it's time for the phone to go off or it's time mm -hmm. for the phone to mm -hmm. go away. Mm -hmm. uh, I have very, very few hard and fast rules. If I had any, it would be don't have any technology whatsoever in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. No good comes from kids texting late at night. Uh, we want them not looking at the lead lights a few hours before bedtime too, so that they get higher quality sleep. If you simply take the phone away while they're doing homework so that they're not toggling back and forth, the research shows that they're going to absorb more information. They're going to be more efficient. They're going to experience less stress. Coming up with policies, set policies, I think is often more effective than coming up with some blanket rule. So you might have your kid come up with a policy like I never text after X time at night. It's also helpful for them because then when they feel pressure to text back and forth with someone who's got a bottomless pit of problems that they want support with and they've had enough, they can say, you know what, I, my, I, don't, I never text after X time. So some of mm -hmm. this is helping them set those boundaries for themselves and some of this is us putting those boundaries in place for them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the setting those up up front as opposed to like 
doing it in the heat of the moment, like you said. So we've we've implemented the no technology in the bedroom. So the only time it's like a little dicey is that they have like um, school iPads. And so they do their homework in their rooms. And then you're always like, well, wait a minute. Does, is there other stuff on that iPad? Are there like games on that? You know, they're like, are you really yes. doing homework? I'm, so, I'm sure there are. I ha- yes. went to a school recently and a seventh grader in the audience, I was talking to students at the time. I told them I would be talking to their parents that night. And I said, is there anything you want me to tell your parents? And the seventh grade girl said, can you tell our parents that when they take our phone out of our bedroom, we don't get more sleep? And I looked at her quizzically and I said, you're going to have to explain to me why that's true first. And Mm -hmm. she said, well, what they don't know is that I also have an iPad and my school computer in my room and those are slower devices. And so it just takes me longer to get through my texts when they take away my phone. So now I add the caveat, don't just take away the phone, take away all of the electronics in the the room when you you expect them to be offline. Yep. I think that's a good rule. Um, At this age for us at sixth grade, where, where we still have a rule where we can go on and look at any texts at any time. And that's, my son actually doesn't seem to have much problem with that. The only thing he gets mad at is if we read the messages before him, because then he doesn't see, he has like a notification that he has a new message. Um, I imagine that will get a little trickier as they get older. And I imagine that'll get a little trickier with things like Snapchat, right? Where it's more ephemeral. So it's like the message, goes away. Right, which is why you want to be focusing more on teaching them how to be empathetic, mm-hmm. teaching them how to set themselves up for success. I tell kids in middle school, sit on your hands and count to 10 before you send anything, no matter how benign mm-hmm. it might be. Because mm-hmm. in terms of brain development, it takes longer at that age for that signal in the back of the brain to get to the front of the brain where your logical, rational problem-solving skills are. I also recommend that they think about who they're with when they make the kinds of choices that they're not proud of. Because much in the same way that uh, peer pressure is influential, it has a lot more to do with behavior contagion than anything else. And if kids understand who brings out the worst in them, they might recognize that if there's a group chat and that person is on it, they might be better served getting off. They can also pay attention to how they feel using certain apps. You know, one might make them feel pretty bad about themselves and another might just be Mm -hmm. mindless fun when they don't have other Mm -hmm. things to do. You want to be teaching them how to make those calls. Yep. Any resources that you love uh, in terms of um, dealing with technology? Anything comes so to I'd recommend Devorah Heitner's book. Uh, she's got a couple. Her recent one is Growing Up in Public. Okay. And she wrote uh, ScreenWise before that. Um, Anna Hamayun wrote Social Media Wellness. Uh, there's a website, Samir Hindusha is a wonderful research researcher who writes a lot about this topic and his website is Mm cyberbullying.org and he he does a lot of work with justin patchen as well but that website is full of very very technical information about various apps so Mm -hmm. i don't have that technical know-how i talk a lot more Mm -hmm. about how to not blow up your social life and how to have balance He talks a lot more about how do you contact a social media company if you need to get something taken down. And he's actually the researcher who did the study on online cognitive versus affective empathy. And I talk about Mm, that in middle school superpowers. Awesome. I'm putting you on the spot here and you're delivering with all these resources. (laughs) This is great. Um, Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm like a couple of like, these are maybe like a little more like old school way to look at it, but I, I, I've kind of told my kids, like, if you want it, want to see it on the front page of the newspaper, um, to the extent they know what a newspaper is, then don't, <laughs> um, then don't put it in print. And I also have the grandmother rule. If you wouldn't be happy about your grandmother reading this text, like don't send it. So I don't know. Yeah, um, that's but- solid advice. Um, okay, well, cool. I'm going to check out those resources that you mentioned as well, because this is going to be, you know, something that we're navigating for years to come in my house. So, um, we need to get a lot, a lot smarter about it. Um, okay, cool. So, um, an area that stretches across all these topics. So whether we're talking about the physical changes, the social interactions, even technology is 
mental health. And it's something that I think as parents, we're all really focused on. We all see very scary statistics around things like depression rates, even suicide, which is obviously like worst nightmare type scenarios. So um, I'm curious, just given all your experience as a parent, as a counselor, um, you know, what have you seen kind of be most effective to really help bolster um, the chances for, you know, to be mentally healthy for our kids? I think one of the hardest things about helping middle schoolers in particular is that they have a hard time recognizing the difference between the mood fluctuations of puberty and symptoms of real depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. It can be hard for us as adults, especially since they're spending more time in their room and we don't know how much of that is normal, how much is them just needing increased privacy versus them withdrawing. So you want to, as a parent, first understand what constitutes a worrisome trend. So if they're no longer doing things that they once took pleasure in, if they're spending excessive time online or interacting with dark chat groups, if they wildly changed their sleeping or eating habits or seem to take very little joy in things, you want to be paying attention to all of that and making sure you're getting professional intervention or at least an evaluation. And We want to be talking to them about how to ask for help. We want to be helping label their feelings so that they can start to recognize when they need that support, have conversations with them about who they might go to for help if they are in a crisis, making it clear it doesn't have to be us, the parent, because Mm -hmm. especially if they're worried they'll disappoint us or scare us, or if they think we're not at our peak, they might not want to burden us with their problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And then beyond that, just recognizing that developmentally, this is an age when half of suicides are due to impulsivity. And so this is another challenge. A kid can look very light and happy one minute and be laughing and the next minute sink into the depths of despair and do something very impulsive and irreversible when they're in the depths Mm. of despair. So staying connected, not peppering them with, you know, are you okay? And constantly uh, poking at them to see if they're fine. One of my students once said, and I I think I shared this in Middle School Matters, please tell parents to stop saying, are you okay? Because we feel like as a knee-jerk reaction, we have to say yes. And then we feel like we've lost the opportunity to say we're not. Better to just knock on their door and say, hey, I'm just checking in. Do you need a snack? Keeping it a little low key, but staying connected Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. being you know, part of their lives, lowering the pressure, focusing on their strengths. All of that is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of giving them somebody to go to, I think that one of the other things that you talk about um, in your books is what to do when you have a friend who is showing some of these like really worrying symptoms. And so what would you tell kids to do if they have a friend who says, I'm going to hurt myself or something like that? And, you know, but but don't, do not tell anybody this is like a total secret. Like how would you advise them on something like that? So ideally you have this conversation before they're actually in that situation. And mm-hmm. you want to be talking to your kid about what are age appropriate problems for your friends to be talking to you about. And Lisa Damore has uh, written about this a little bit, but there are some things that are just typical kid problems. You know, what do you wear to the dance or, um, you know, I have a crush, things like that. And, fine, like have those conversations. But if they start telling you that they're self-harming or that someone's hurting them or that they're having really dark thoughts, not only do they not have the capacity to support that person, but even a general adult might not have it. They might need even more specialized help. And while you might feel like a snitch in that moment, you actually might be saving a life if you are making sure they get the support they need. And so you can rehearse with them what they might say to their friend. It might be something like, wow, that sounds really hard. Are you talking to an adult about it? Do you want me to help you talk to an adult about it? And giving them that language so that they can not only support that friend, but also help themselves because our middle schoolers don't have the reserves and the stamina Mm. to deal with those kinds of big problems. Yeah, yeah. Okay. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, are there any resources that you like when it comes to uh, mental health for kids? Um, 
Katie Hurley has a great workbook on mm -hmm. um, for, for teens that is, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to, I, I think it's called the Stress Busters Workbook. Uh, Lisa Damore wrote the Emotional Lives of Teenagers. Okay. Um, Claire Shipman wrote the Confidence Code for Girls. There's a companion workbook that might be better suited to younger girls um, on the cusp of middle school, but it's a good resource as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This is like super helpful actually to get all these great resources because I know like, you know, each of these issues that we talked about, like depending on the kid and the family, like everybody's got their own stuff they're working through. So this is just awesome to have like further reading, listening, et cetera. Um, okay. So just one or two questions and then um, we will get you out of here. I know. Oh, oh one other resource I'll today. share. Um, yeah. Robin Silverman, Dr. Robin Silverman, mm -hmm. uh, ha, uh, how to talk to kids about anything. Mm, okay. There's oh. another, a lot of conversation starters yeah. and Ned Johnson, self-driven child. Yeah. And is how to talk to your kids about anything. Is that a podcast? Cause I feel like I've heard that. She, yes, she has a podcast yeah. as well. Oh, cool. Okay, cool, cool. Sa same, same author. And for uh, parents who are concerned about raising kids who can have a huge repertoire of ways to deal with peer pressure who are looking to fend off substance uh, use, um, Jessica Leahy's Addiction Inoculation is great as well. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all those. Um, okay. So two, two questions here to wrap it up. Um, one mistake that parents or kids make again and again, that is totally avoidable maybe, um, but makes their lives miserable during these years. Is there anything obvious that stands out? You may add some real value to people's lives right now with this one. Um, there's so many things and probably the biggest is to make sure that when our kid makes a mistake or does something incomprehensible to us that we don't try to interpret it through our adult lens. And I share some examples in middle school superpowers of the kinds of mistakes kids make that might lead us to think, oh my gosh, are they a you know, pathological liar? <laughs> are they a horrible mm -hmm. person? Uh, mm -hmm. Do they have zero common sense? And when we see their behavior through the lens of a middle schooler instead, and we take the time to figure out what their need is that they're feeling or what they're trying to accomplish, even if it looks totally wackadoodle to us as adults, we're going to have an easier time approaching them without judgment, without criticism, mm -hmm. to be able to say, help me understand and to have some kind of a dialogue where rather than getting stuck in shame, they can learn from the experience and make a different choice the next time. That's great. I love that one. Um, okay. Last question for you. This is kind of my standard closing question. It's a little bit of a big one, but uh, I'll just get, go right after it. What's one thing that you figured out in life that most others haven't? I guess I'll go back to the beginning of the podcast mm. because that anxiety that you were talking about, you know, how do you make sure your kid does well in school? How do you make sure your kid chooses good friends? All of these things that we worry about for them, it's so mm -hmm. easy to approach them with a deficit mindset or as if we're warding off tremendous danger as opposed to looking at the setbacks, looking at the challenges, looking at the missteps as situations we can leverage to turn out healthier, more competent, more capable, emotionally well kids, to just turn that whole notion of a mistake on its head and see it as an opportunity. I think it's easier for me to see that now with the vantage point of having uh, my kids, two kids who've gone through their teens and one who's now a sophomore in high school. But in general, the things that seem catastrophic in the moment often are the things that set them up for the most success later. We have to yeah. just tolerate our own discomfort. That's great. That's I love that. 
perspective, um, and that's encouraging to hear for people who are going, you know, going through this um, experience right now um, as well. It's great to hear that perspective. Okay, Phyllis. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm sure people are going to want to check out all your stuff um, after listening to this. So where can they go and, and find um, your work? Uh, they can find Middle School Matters and Middle School Superpowers anywhere books are sold. I have a website, phyllisfagel.com mm-hmm. as well. And I am on social media, what used to be Twitter, as well as threads and yep. Instagram, yep. Facebook, LinkedIn, pretty much everywhere. Uh, not all the time, but I am fairly responsive. And my email is on my website as well. Awesome. Okay, cool. Uh, I will link to that in the show notes. And uh, thank you again. This has been really awesome. I really appreciate the work that you do and it's adding value to my life and I'm sure many, many others. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, my friend, Phyllis Fagel on all things middle school. She was great. I really enjoyed that. And I feel like actually I have a lot of homework to do now myself after that one. All those books and podcasts that she recommended, uh, it seems like there's just a wealth of information in there. Um, As a reminder, all the links to those are in the show notes if you want to go check that out. And if you'd like my full breakdown on this episode, head over to gregcampion.substack.com and subscribe to my newsletter. It hits inboxes every other week and sums up the best of what I'm learning from all of these podcasts, but also from everything that I'm reading and watching and listening to. And I include all of that content in there for you. Greg Campion dot substack.com would love to have you join our community there finally if you enjoyed this episode please do me a favor and think of just one person in your life who you think might benefit from listening to it and please share it with them that would be awesome or and or share it on social media that would be amazing as well so anything you can do to help spread the word is much appreciated that is it for today my friend thank you so much for listening and i will see you next time